0: books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. This morning that means in God's providence we've landed in James 1 verses 1 to 4. Let's pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning. It's not lost on us, your timing, that in the midst of what's been a hard week for many in our church body, we are reminded that you are a God who is still at work in the midst of our trials. And so, Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, that this is where we've landed this week to start a new series on the book of James. We know that this is part of your good plan for us, and now we pray that you would just speak to us loudly and clearly through your word. We pray that you would encourage us this morning, that you would comfort us this morning, and that where necessary, you would challenge us. God, we just pray that your word would do its thing, that you would Allow it to work in a powerful way and that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, please be gracious to us in this moment that we might hear your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the English language, no doubt, is filled with idioms and phrases that just don't make a lot of sense. For example, in the summertime, we might say that someone is sweating like a pig. But the truth is that pigs don't really sweat all that much. They have sweat glands like other mammals, but they tend to rid themselves of heat through their skin or via respiration. So if you're sweating a lot, it's possible you might smell bad like a pig, but you're probably not actually sweating like a pig. Similarly, the phrase, it's always darkest right before the dawn, is a phrase that sounds inspirational and comforting, but it doesn't really square with reality. Now it's true that it is coldest right before the dawn, but the brightness of the night sky depends on the moon's appearance as well as artificial lighting on the ground. It has nothing to do with proximity to sunrise. So if you're trying to encourage someone by telling them, it's always darkest right before the dawn. That's a nice thing to say, it just doesn't line up with reality. Or to use one more example, a common piece of advice people often give in certain endeavors, especially business ones, is that you should start by picking the low-hanging fruit first. The idea being that you should start with easy victories, gain some momentum before you tackle harder tasks. But according to fruit-picking experts, that's a terrible idea. You should not start at the bottom of the tree. Instead, you should start at the top. At the top, that's where the fruit is exposed to the sun and tends to ripen the fastest. You want to pick the low-hanging fruit last. The point is, we tend to use phrases in the English language that just don't make a lot of sense. They don't line up with reality. And at first glance, it would seem that at the beginning of the book of James, we have one of those types of nonsense phrases. In James 1, verse 2, James challenges us as Christians to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. On the surface, that seems like a nonsense phrase along the lines of saying that someone is sweating like a pig, or there's always darkest right before the dawn. But it's quickly apparent in the context of James 1-2, and for that matter in the context of the book of James as a whole, that James absolutely means what he says in verse 2. When he commands us as Christians to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds, he's not giving us religious speak, nor is he using a phrase that is nonsense in light of reality. On the contrary, he fully expects that we will actually count it as joy when we face trials. And the question I think we have to answer this morning then is simply this, how is that possible? The reason why James 1-2 seems like a nonsense phrase is because it seems illogical, if not even impossible, to count it as joy when we face difficulty. And yet, this is exactly what James tells us to do. And so our task this morning is to simply make sense of the nonsense, to figure out what James is actually saying when he tells us to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. So that said, let's get to it. If you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, if you're physically able, James 1, verses 1 to 4 is where we are this morning. The first four books, or first, excuse me, first four verses of the book of James, the words will be on the screen here. You can follow on that way, or you can listen as I read, or you can read along in your own Bibles. But the Word of God says this, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So the meat of our passage today is certainly found in verses 2 to 4 but since we're starting a new book this morning I don't want to completely ignore verse 1 as I think verse 1 gives us some important background information that will be helpful for us as we make our way through the book of James. For example, we're told in verse 1 that the author of the book of James is or we're told that the author of the book is James and he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, almost certainly the James in reference here is James the brother of Jesus. It's commonly believed by most biblical historians that after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph would go on to have other children, including James. Now, whether that actually makes James, in light of the virgin birth of Jesus, that makes him a half-brother, or a quarter-brother, or a pseudo-brother, I don't know. But in the book of Galatians, he's simply described as the brother of Jesus. Now, James was not just the brother of Jesus. He was also one of the key leaders of the early church in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, though, he doesn't mention either one of those things in his introduction in verse one, but instead simply refers to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, not to go on too much of an aside here, there's probably a bit of a lesson for us in that. If you're the type of person who likes to name drop or point out who you know or who you're related to, if you're the type of person who says, well, actually, my cousin is the grand prince of Luxembourg, and he owns more sheep than anyone else in all the northern hemisphere, if that's you, If that's your tendency, it might be helpful to remember that when James had a chance to introduce himself in verse 1, he doesn't point out that he's Jesus' brother or one of the early leaders in the church at Jerusalem, although both of those things are pretty impressive. Instead, he merely refers to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, the best thing you have going for you has nothing to do with your accomplishments or nothing to do with who you're related to. It has everything to do with whether you know Jesus Christ. It's better to be a slave to Christ than it is to be the richest king in the world. All that to say, though, James, the brother of Christ and leader of the church in Jerusalem, is the author of the book of James. And in verse 1, he tells us that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, it's possible that James is using that language metaphorically to indicate the status of all Christians as strangers and exiles living in the world. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter uses that word, dispersion, in that way to indicate that Christians everywhere are living as strangers and exiles in the world. But given the content of the rest of the book of James, it seems more likely that here in verse 1, James is using that term more literally to refer to Jewish Christians, meaning those who are ethnically Jewish who are now trusting in Christ, and they've been dispersed as a result of persecution. And that dispersion and persecution explains why James immediately in this book jumps into the topic of suffering in verse 2. So that brings us now back to the meat of the passage in the seemingly nonsense language of verse 2. In a book that's known for its practicality and imperatives, in 108 verses in the book of James, over 50 commands are found. But the first imperative or the first command in the book is to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Now certainly that command sounds good and religious, right? It sounds really good. Count it joy when you face trials. But in reality, doing what James says is really, really difficult. To be transparent, this week has not been an easy one. For our family, it's been a challenge. Tanya's had some ongoing challenges with her health. Our kids had some pretty serious disappointment in their lives. There's some stuff that happened at work that was just hard this week. And in general, I would say for our family, life has been kind of difficult. And on top of that, some of our friends have faced really hard things too. A good friend of mine received some bad news this week regarding one of his relatives in terminal cancer. Other friends from this church, as many of you know, were hit by tornadoes on Friday night. And so when I started reading about James 1, verses 2 to 4 earlier this week, and then started writing and editing the sermon even up till yesterday, I'm just going to be honest and tell you that James 1, 2 was not the easiest pill to swallow this week. At least not in reality. In theory, it's great to talk about having joy in the midst of trials, right? That sounds good. But in reality, having joy in the midst of trials is just really hard. And in that way, I would say this. I think an initial reading of James 1-2 actually leaves us with more questions than answers. I don't think James 1-2 is one of those verses that you just read and think, oh, that's cool, all right, let's move on. No, I think James 1-2 is begging for some clarification. It's asking us to meditate. There's some questions that we need to ask. And so to that end, what I'd like to do is simply use those questions as the structure of how we work through James 1, 2 to 2-4 this morning. Again, I think James 1, 2 in particular, but James 1, 2 to 2-4 gives some questions. And so I want to use those questions as the framework for our message today. So three questions. Question one, what does James actually mean when he tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Question two, why should we count it as joy when we face trials? And question three, if it's possible to have joy in the midst of trials... How do we go about practically pursuing this type of joy? All right, Those are the three questions I think James lends itself to, and so those are the three questions I want to use as our framework for our time together this morning. So let's start with the first question. What does James actually mean when he tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? Again, that's the language here. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When James tells us here to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, is he suggesting that we should always be happy and that we should never feel sad and that we should always be jumping up and down with excitement as we face difficulty? Oh, trials, yes. Is that what James is saying here? Should we be the type of people who say when we find out that a loved one is dying of a rare disease, oh, that's great, let's break out the chocolate and the sparkling grape juice, let's have a party. Is that what James is saying here? Is that his expectation of us? If so, it seems like an impossibly high burden to bear, does it not? But thankfully, I don't think that's what James is saying. I think the key to understanding what James is saying is understanding what we mean by joy and also understanding what James means when he talks about having all joy. First of all, let's just make a distinction here. Joy is different than happiness and excitement. To be joyful does not mean that we find life's difficulties easy or that we're not saddened by hardship Rather, to be joyful is to have a contentment and hope in all circumstances that comes from knowing and trusting that God knows what he's doing. And to be clear, this type of joy can absolutely coincide with sadness and sorrow. And that's where the word all that James uses in verse 2 becomes very important. When James tells us to count it all joy, he's not telling us that we should only have joy, but rather he's identifying the quality of the joy that we should have. Our joy should be full and complete. It should be a pure joy. But hear me, that pure joy can coincide with sadness and sorrow. To quote commentator Douglas Moo, James is not suggesting that Christians facing trials will have no response other than joy, as if we were commanded never to be saddened by difficulties. His point, rather, is that trials should be an occasion for genuine rejoicing. Now, the question of why our trials should be an occasion of genuine rejoicing still remains to be answered, and it's one we need to address here shortly. But for now, we're simply pointing out that when James tells us to consider it all joy, he's not saying that we should only have joy. But rather, he's simply describing the intensity of our joy. It's full and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, before we get to the question of how that's possible, there's one other thing we need to point out in verse 2. Notice that James talks at the end of verse 2 about meeting trials of various kinds. That language of various kinds is important. As it clues us in, James is not just talking about persecution. Rather, he's talking about all the difficulties that we might face as a result of living in a broken world. So sickness, loss of loved ones, natural disasters, loneliness, financial hardship, persecution, disappointment, loss of material goods. All of that would be included when James says trials of various kinds. So to recap then, when James tells us to consider all joy when we trials of various kinds, he's not telling us just put on a happy face and get over it nor is he suggesting that we will only feel joy in the midst of life's difficulties. What he is saying, though, is that real and full joy is possible, even in, the, even in the midst of life's troubles and difficulties. But the question still remains, how is that possible? And that brings us to question number two. Why should we count it as joy when we face trials? In verse two, we have to be honest, James throws us a bit of a theological grenade Right? Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds. That seems crazy. It seems crazy. But in verses 3 and 4, James gives us a reason as to why we can count a joy. Listen to James here in verse 3 and 4. He says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So why can you count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds? In short, I think we could say this. We can count it as joy because trials refine our faith and they allow us to grow in Christian maturity. As we trust God in the midst of our trials, God uses those trials to produce steadfastness and endurance. And as we endure and we discover that God can be trusted, Our character grows and we become more mature in our faith. It's as if our spiritual muscles are stretched. We use those spiritual muscles and we grow. Trials force us to trust God. They test our faith not in the sense that they're revealing, in this case, I think, whether we're Christians or not, but rather they're burning away impurities. I think that's what James means here when he talks about testing our faith, that they're burning away things that are not helpful. As that happens... As our impurities are burned away, our faith is deepened and our character grows. Now, I think this is something that Tani and I can attest to that we've seen firsthand. As Tony and I have reflected on the last four years of our son's sickness, and now the last year with Tani being sick, I think we would both acknowledge that the last four years have been incredibly hard and at times really, really discouraging. There have been multiple times where I've thought to myself, I did not think life would look like this. I thought things would be different. While I've mourned the state of our life many times, I also have to admit, and Tony would say the same thing, that in the last four years, God has refined us and deepened our faith. I'm not the same person that I was four years ago. Now, some of the things that have come out in the last four years haven't always been pretty. I think I'm more irritable than I used to be. I oftentimes just feel tired, and sadly, I feel grumpy sometimes. In fact, a lot of the times. But on the whole, I would say this, although there have been some things that have come out that I haven't loved On the whole, I would say, the depth of my faith has grown. I trust God more than I did four years ago. I'm even more convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel than I was four years ago. Four years ago, I knew that Christ was a great Savior and I was a great sinner, but increasingly, I feel that truth to the depth of my bones. I used to talk about the return of Christ as if it would be a nice thing, but now I long for it. I pray more. I probably have less answers, but more confidence in God's character. Now, don't get me wrong here, I'm still a serious work in progress, and I'll promise you this, my wife and kids could attest to that. I think the perfection that James talks about here in verse 4 will not be fully fully achieved until Jesus returns. But listen, while I'm still a work in progress, what I'm saying is simply this, I'm not what I once was. And a large part of my growth, and this is where I'm just giving testimony and credit to God, a large part of my growth has been that God has used trials in our lives In the last four years, we've had to work through a lot of hard things. But because of those hard things, our faith has deepened. Our trust in Christ has grown. I think that's the key to understanding what James is getting at here in verses 2 to 4. He's saying this, when we walk through difficulty, it's almost as if there's a bit of an exchange. In the midst of our trials, we're forced to give up earthly comfort. And that's hard. But in return, what we get, if we cling to Christ, is we grow in Christian character it's because of that exchange that we can rejoice. But listen, the only way you'll be able to rejoice is if you're really convinced that growing in Christian character is more important than your earthly comfort. When I was in high school, I decided to give up pop, cold turkey, one day. Now, I like pop a lot. Part of my decision to give up pop or soda or Coke, if you're from the South, my friends and I would regularly stop at Heartland Pantry, which is only the greatest convenience store in all of Sheraton, Iowa. And we would pick up Mountain Dew. An occasion at home, I would have Pepsi or Cherry Pepsi, but in high school, I read something about the negative health effects of drinking pop, and so one day, I just decided I would be done. I was specifically motivated by sports, because I'd read that I would improve my athletic performance. I don't know if that actually happened, but I was convinced that it would, so I just gave it up, and I really haven't gone back since. In the last 25 years, I've probably had pop maybe on five occasions. My point in sharing that story is simply to say this. I was willing to exchange something I liked, pop, because I believed what I would get in return would be better. And because I believed the return would be better, this was a joyful exchange. It was not hard. Now, there were moments where I missed Pop, at least in the early going, but the return seemed worth it. And therefore, I would say it was a joyful trade-off. In the same way, I would say this. If we are thoroughly convinced that growing in Christian character is more important than our earthly character, it's then that it's possible we can have joy in the midst of trials. But if you don't believe that, then joy will be elusive. So church, let me just ask you this question this morning. Do you really believe that growing in Christ's likeness is more important than your earthly comfort and happiness? If so, then joy will be possible even in your trials. But if not, trials will wreck you. But Listen, if you're in that latter boat, let me just plead with you this morning to consider something. I'm convinced with all my heart that growing in Christian character is more important than our earthly comfort. Our life on this earth is temporary. We are here today, gone tomorrow. And so while this world is filled with trouble, and it is. Sickness, death, relational difficulty, loneliness, disappointment, natural disasters, you name it. While this world is filled with trouble, this world is not the end. Those who are in Christ will one day be with Him forever. And on that day, there will be no more sorrow or pain or tears. And the best thing we can do as Christians to prepare for that day is to become more like Christ. To grow in Christ-like character. And whether we like it or not, and let's be honest, we usually don't, trials are oftentimes the fast track to Christian growth. A friend of mine texted me this week about something going on in my life, and he made an observation that hit me really squarely. He said, it's strange how God usually uses disappointments in our life in a bigger way than successes. I think he's absolutely right. God often does use our disappointments more than successes. But in light of James 1, the only addition I would make to that is to say maybe it's not so strange. Trials produce steadfastness, endurance. And as we endure and hold fast to our Christian faith, we learn that God can be trusted And our Christian muscles, our strength muscles, our spiritual muscles grow. We become more mature. We become more like Jesus. And it's because trials have this effect on us that we can rejoice in the midst of our difficulties. Now again, hear me clearly. Rejoicing does not imply that there will be no lamenting or sorrow. On the contrary, Scripture regularly assumes that weeping and lamenting are part of life in a broken world. But in the midst of our weeping, in the midst of our lamenting, joy is still possible. And it's possible because we know God uses our trials. Our trials, hear this, are not meaningless. In fact, this is one of the things that separates the Christian worldview from any other worldview. As Christians, we firmly believe that God is using our trials. That our trials are not meaningless. That He's using them to produce steadfastness. And as we endure and grow in trust... Our character grows. So this is why we should count it joy when we face trials of many kinds. Is because we know that God is using our trials to produce steadfastness. But I think there's one other question, and it's an important one. The third question is simply this. If it's possible to have joy in the midst of trials, how do we practically go about pursuing this type of joy? Now hear this. If growth in Christ-likeness was as easy as simply going through trials, then every person in this room would eventually be mature in Christ's since every one of us at some point or another will go through trials. But the equation is not as simple as be a Christian plus go through trials equals maturity. Right? We all know this both experientially and we see it here in Scripture too. We know that just because you go through trials doesn't mean you grow in Christ-likeness. In fact, we could point to many people who've gone through trials and it's been the opposite effect. And it turns out there's another part of the equation here. And that's what this passage is actually about. In James 1, verses 2 to 4, James is not simply telling us this is what happens when Christians go through trials. Rather, what he's doing is giving us a command telling us how we should process trials and how we should go through trials and how we should think during trials. In fact, this is the way the passage starts in verse 2. Again, let me read verse 2. He says this, counted it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now in verse 2, I don't think James is telling us how to feel I don't think he's necessarily telling us what to do, but rather, I think he's commanding us how to think. As he tells us us in verse 2, we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. In other words, I think what James is saying is this, every time we face a trial, we have a choice to make. Are we going to choose to count it as joy, or are we going to choose to count it as loss? Again, to be clear, I don't think James is telling us to put on a happy face pull up our bootstraps, and by the force of our sheer determination, will ourselves to be happy. Instead, what I think he's doing is calling us to think differently. He's calling us to meditate on the truths of God's Word and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order that we might have hope and joy in the midst of life's difficulties. The challenge, then, is to think differently And this challenge to think differently is confirmed by the language of verse 3, in which James reminds us of what we know to be true, namely that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So the battle for joy then in the midst of life's trials is a battle to think and to meditate on what we know to be true in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. If Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if Jesus rose from the dead, And if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and if Jesus will come again and reign victoriously, and if Jesus is going to make all things right and new when he comes again, then, and only then, is it possible to have joy in the midst of life's trials. We are able to rejoice because we know that God uses trials to produce character and steadfastness and maturity. And that character and steadfastness and maturity makes us more prepared for the day that Jesus returns. But here's the thing. I think this is the challenge of James. You have to choose to meditate on those truths in the midst of life's difficulties in order to be able to experience joy. You cannot be a passive bystander in your trials and expect joy to follow. There's no promise here in James 1, 2-4 that if you just go through trials, you'll automatically have joy. Instead, there is a challenge that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, We must choose to count it as joy. We must reflect on what we know. We must allow steadfastness to have its full effect. Or maybe to say it more concisely, we must choose to meditate on what we know to be true about Jesus. And in light of all that, I would say this. The most important preacher in your life is not me or Jim or Seth or anyone who steps in this pulpit. For that matter, the most important preacher in your life is not your favorite radio preacher or your favorite podcast person. The most important preacher in your life is you. Will you preach to yourself the good news? Will you remind yourself of what Jesus has done and the hope that he brings? In the midst of trials, will you choose to value growth in Christ's likeness more than your earthly comfort and ease? If so, it is possible In fact, it will happen that you will have joy in trials. But hear me, it will take spirit-filled and grace-driven effort to think in this way. Listen, I told you earlier that this has been a challenging week for many in our church, no doubt. Also a challenging week for me personally. For a lot of reasons, Tuesday in particular was just kind of a humdinger of a day. You've probably had some of those days before. I probably went to bed earlier on Tuesday night than I've gone to bed in years. I was just stressed and tired and exhausted and just sad from dealing with life's difficulties. When I woke up on Wednesday morning, I didn't feel any better. But then I came into the office and I had to think about this passage because I needed to write a sermon. And as it turns out, there's kind of an expectation that I would have something to say on Sunday morning. And so I was thinking about this passage, thinking about James 1, to 2-4, meditating on the value of growing in Christ's likeness And a funny thing happened is I just thought about this passage over and over and as the Spirit was just doing a work, it was as if the ice in my heart started to slowly melt away. As I meditated on Scripture and the truth of what James is saying, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, instead of feeling sorry for myself, I started thinking more about the value of steadfastness and endurance. I allowed myself to dwell on the truths of the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done and what he's doing even now. And as I did that, as I thought about Scripture, the Spirit did a work in me. The Spirit was restoring my joy. Now, let me be absolutely clear. It was the grace of God that I started meditating on those truths to begin with. In God's providence, this just happened to be the passage I was preaching on this week. So I'm not telling you that story to say, look how wise I was. I sat down and thought about James 1, 2 to 4. No, I had to. But in God's grace, he used that passage. Now I hope that I would have eventually got to a passage like that on my own. But in God's grace, because this is my job, this is where he led me. And as that happened, and this is the point I'm making, as I meditated on the truth of God's word, and as I thought about what Christ has done and is doing, as I considered the value of growing in godly character, it was then that my joy was restored. And in that, I think, is the challenge of James 1, 2-4. In the midst of life's difficulties, James is calling us to count it as joy, because we know That our trials are producing steadfastness, and steadfastness leads to maturity in Christ. Or to say it more simply, James is calling us to think on what we know to be true about Jesus. So the question this morning then is simply this. will, Will we think more about the difficulties of this life, or will we think more about what we know to be true in Jesus? Listen, I don't know what difficulty you're going through right now. I know some of the things some of you are going through, but I suspect in this room there are many troubles. Many in here are facing health issues. Maybe some of you are facing financial difficulties. Maybe your marriage is hard or parenting seems impossible. Maybe you feel lonely. Or maybe right now you're feeling the sting of disappointment. Maybe your job is difficult. Maybe you're being ridiculed because of your faith. Maybe a loved one died, It's just been hard. Maybe you've been bullied at school this year or your friends have recently betrayed you. Or maybe it's something else. but the point is, it's probably something, and if it's not something now, it'll be something soon. But here's my question for you: In the midst of those difficulties, are you choosing to meditate on the good news of the gospel and the eternal promises of Jesus Christ? Or instead, are you merely focusing on your trials? Now listen, I understand that at first glance, James 1, two to four makes no sense. <laughs> Joy in the midst of trials almost sounds as nonsensical, sweating like a pig. But James is not going for shock value here and telling us to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. Instead, he's challenging us to think differently, to meditate on the truths of God's Word, to focus on the eternal value of growing more like Jesus, to think about what's true because of Jesus and less about our troubles. So listen, church, Nonsensical as it may be. Here's the challenge for us this morning. To count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we are to let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Or maybe to put it in summary form. We are to think more about Jesus and the great promises that he gives us and less about the difficulties of this world. Because as we do this, as we focus on what we're getting in return, growth in Christ's likeness, it's then that we can have joy in the midst of life's difficulties. So church, my challenge to you this morning is simply this, look to Christ and count it as joy when you face trials of many kinds. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and the challenge that he gives us this morning to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds and we pray that we would be able to do just that precisely because we are so enamored with who you are and what you're doing. We know that our trials are producing steadfastness, and that steadfastness leads to growth in likeness. So God, we pray that you would just help us to be the type of people who have joy in the midst of trials. Not because our trials are easy, not because life is fun always, but rather because we are convinced the exchange we're getting in return is worth it that we are growing to be more like you. Help us to have that perspective. In Jesus' name, amen.